felt like the walls were coming in on me in town and I hated you know everything I loved about farming you know the open space and the freedom and and everything that had all been taken away and you know I, I never had it I never thought that it would affect me like that. This is Life on the Land, a Grazy Her podcast telling stories of rural and regional women across Australia. Hi, I'm your host for this episode, Sky Manson. Now, who's read the novel Jillaroo by Rachel Treasure? Remember that one? If you haven't read it, it's an intoxicating and exciting insight into romance in the bush and a love of nature and animals and community and red dust and utes and it all. I think many, many people listening will have read it. And our guest today, writer, author and West Australian farmer Fleur MacDonald certainly has. In fact, it was this book that inspired her to become a proper author herself. Tomorrow... Fleur's 18th book will be released and by next year she will have written a whopping 20 novels. Absolutely amazing. But as a woman who grew up in the small town of Oruru in South Australia, this is not how she intended it to be. As a child and a teenager and a university student and a fiancé and a parent, Fleur was hell-bent on farming and owning her own farm. She worked wherever she could convince the male managers to allow her in. She was one of three girls in her course at Marcus Oldham College in Geelong, and she would literally move anywhere to be farming. This love of the land took her to Esperance, right across the Nullarbor in the far southeastern corner of Western Australia, where she bought a farm with her now ex-husband. This is her story. We were, we'd been looking for a farm. We'd been leasing for a, uh, a couple of years and the farm next door to um, my ex's dad came up for sale. So we tried really hard to buy that and we actually signed it up on the day that we got married. And he used to have a lovely joke that he halved his debt within a couple of hours of signing the signing the paperwork for the farm. <laughs> um, so, yeah, and it was, it was, it was a beautiful farm. It's uh, it's river country. It's a very unique piece of Esperance. Esperance is a lot of deep sand and and um, uh, need, needs a lot of TLC. Whereas mine is on the Thomas River um, catchment, and it's a lot of heavy grey clay and um, beautiful stock country, but grows beautiful crops as well. It's um, it's one of my favourite places in the world to be. I also just love Esperance. It is one of my favourite places in the world to be too. So uh, we, we had that in common and, I, you know, I spent a little bit of time down there um, unexpectedly yeah. really when I finished university and was working for the ABC. So where is your farm in relation to Esperance? Uh, it's east. Yeah, east mm. of Esperance, out past coming up. It's on the road that goes down to the Thomas River Beach, which is where a lot of people go to watch the whales when they turn up in um, August, September. Mm-hmm. So what kind of condition was the farm and, and your living conditions when you first moved there? Yeah, the, so the farm was um, fairly run down. It, um, it had 
the guy that had owned it beforehand um, had been crook. And so, you know, the fences were in pretty poor shape and um, hadn't been a lot of fertiliser history on it and so forth. So, um, so yeah, that was easy to fix. The What wasn't easy to fix was the fact that there wasn't any power there and um, it was going to cost about 30 grand to put it on. And back in 1996, 30 grand was a huge, what still is, but it was a huge amount of money. Mm. So the heart that was there, um, or the little demandable at Cohart, um, had uh, lots of holes in the wall and I would try and stuff them up with uh, steel wool, but I'd still get mice in there. Um, the window sills had moss growing in them and I'd be forever getting the screwdriver to get that out and um, try and make them look a little bit more <laughs> um, livable. And it was, so it, there, wasn't, um, a, there wasn't a toilet when we first moved out there either. So we sort of enclosed the veranda of this hut and made a makeshift uh, toilet come laundry, come office. And down the other end, there, there was this caravan that was underneath a veranda, which we ended up pulling out and enclosing and making the kids' room. So it was um, the kids' room was probably the most vermin-proof part of the house which was really good because uh it used to get snakes in there quite ready and um the one the first time I got a snake in the house <coughs> was when I had uh Rochelle was I was pregnant with Hayden and, and Rochelle was in a rocker she was only I don't know six or seven months old she's in a rocker sitting on the kitchen table and I was out in the doing the book work in the office and I heard this rustling behind me I turned around and I was like oh god there's a big guy behind me and I did all good deserting farmers wives would do was rang my mum 2,000 kilometres away <laughs> <laughs> and mum said um that's great Flair but what would you like me to do about it yeah. <laughs> so, well, I don't know but I can remember my uh, my um father-in-law would say to me that I would get to a point at some stage that I had to kill a snake and I used to say to him no way like I will end up taking everything that I love inside the kids the dogs whatever inside and we'll wait till the snake passes and you can't do that when the snake is inside so what was this like? Like, obviously, and I'm not sure what your conditions were like in South Australia, but fairly primitive. You are uh, having newborn children at the same time, but also, I suppose, did you feel like you were living the dream and and that fact overcame the, uh, the, the living conditions, the challenging living conditions? Do you know, I never actually gave it any thought. Uh, it wasn't, there wasn't any other option. That was, I guess that was the main, the main thing. We, you know, we had a dream. We wanted to be landholders. We wanted to expand uh, what we had, what we, what land we had. Uh, we wanted to be successful and we both loved stock and we both loved farming. That was what I think both of us were, were really born to do. Um, so not having an option didn't really yeah, you, you just didn't really think about it. So this life did become difficult for you. What sort of happened there? couple of things I suppose Rochelle was born in uh, four years after we moved out to the farm that was when the power we got the power put on um, at that point and then Hayden was born 18 months later oh no sorry 13 months later at 18 months Rochelle was diagnosed uh, with dyspraxia which is a breakdown in speech and gross motor skills and then when Hayden was born we couldn't really quite work out what was wrong with him he was just a really colicky screamy 
difficult, difficult baby. Um, and at 18 months, he was diagnosed with, um, well, he was. we were told that he was at high risk of autism. We didn't actually get a proper diagnosis till he was in year three. We had, so we were treating the symptoms rather than actually having um, having a diagnosis, which was fine because we needed to teach him to talk the same way as what we needed to teach Rochelle. Um, I, I battled my ex who refused to believe that there was anything different about, um, about Hayden. Um, so that was, that was pretty tricky. Uh, and there were certainly some things going on in my world uh, within my marriage that weren't supportive or helpful. So, yeah, life just got a little bit hard for a while with, with all of that. And I think, you know, I, th I think we were just two really different people who had, who had two really different thought processes on how to raise children. Mm. And so the challenge of um, a, having a di two diagnosis of your children who are fairly young and living east of Esperance, which is 10 hours from Western Australia's capital city and in a farming area that's just sort of developing itself, what kind of medical services or support did you have available to you? Um, look, we had, there wasn't a lot in Esperance. We we had a speech therapist that was at the hospital, but, you know, the 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 need for her was actually quite high so it was really hard to get an appointment and um but we did we uh, we had we had i was in town um twice a week with the kids when they were both having speech therapy um would so i'd sort of stay in one night and would do them both on consecutive days which wasn't ideal for learning but but it, that was the way that it just had to be. And um, but to get a pediatrician or anything like anyone with any um, you know higher skills, we had to go to Perth. So I'd go to Perth twice a year. Uh, and not having grown up in Perth, I think I'd only been there, you know, maybe two or three times before I had to start going by myself with with the kids um, and being really small young kids at the time. Um, you know. It, it was a long it was a long trip with, with them um driving but you know yeah driving but I and I did because I didn't know Perth and it was before GPSs we had I used to put um sticky notes on my steering wheel about where I had to turn if I got to a, a road and I would say well you've got to go left here and I would throw little um you know those um little um just little presents wrapped up, um, lucky dip type presents oh, with yeah. the sticky tape, as much as sticky tape as I could get on there. And I'd chuck them in the back when I hit the Albany Highway and I said, do not speak to me until we get to the hotel oh. and I know where I'm going. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but having the, um, having the uh, roadmap or the, the street directory open on the seat next to me with all of my little prompts around the steering wheel. Oh, wow. Yes, the days before, you know, just plug it into Google and work it out <laughs> on your phone. So, yeah. and what about, did you feel like the level of care that you were getting for your children was was adequate? And did you, did you feel supported in that? Like you were helping them as much as you could, or I can imagine that was particularly isolating. Yeah. Um, I knew I was doing as much as what I could, but I was limited by what what I was to do and that I, I just 
did did what I could. I found like the school when they started school, um, we had a principal there that was incredibly supportive uh, and made sure that both of the kids were well and truly um, supported in their work. And yeah, Hayden went to school not being toilet trained. Um, he was just so globally delayed. Um, and the aid that he had uh, in, in at school um, was probably the, the reason that he got a breakthrough when it came to toilet training. Uh, yeah, it was, um, I, I, and it was funny not having any family there as well. And it's, it's interesting because you know, both the kids are sort of 19 and 20 or t- nearly nearly 21 and 20 and they, mum and I talk about it and she said, we had no idea what you are going through and we weren't particularly supportive, supportive of you. And I said, well, you didn't, you couldn't be. You're in South Australia and, and you know, I was here and that's what that was. Um, the, the family that I married into uh, certainly had... Um, weren't necessarily that supportive either so yeah but you know there's just things that we do and you know we get up and do it because there's nobody else to you know you don't have a choice so you just get on do what you got to do did you feel a level of um i'm not sure if it's uh i don't know did you did you feel a level of um that you didn't want to tell your you said that your parents had no idea what you were, the level of what you were going through, and did you feel like you just needed to be stoic and um, mend it all and just be the best mum that you could? Um, yeah, in a word. I had a thought process early on in the piece in my marriage that I had, uh, <laughs> I had made my bed and I had to lie in it. Mm. And so did you ever think about, yes, you, you obviously didn't think about moving back to South Australia closer to your family support networks, um, considering that you had two, two challenging little kids? Uh, well, when, no, no, not, a, not when they were little. Um, no, I didn't. It was not, just wouldn't have been a thought process. Not an option. Fleur, you ended up moving back into Esperance. Tell me about that process. Rochelle was 14 and she was at the uh, hostel in in Esperance and uh, Hayden was 13 and he was just about to start and I was very concerned that Hayden wasn't going to cope with the hostel. Um, Being autistic, the change of going from home to the the hostel plus the high school um, I thought was going to be too big for him. So I had cared for my mother-in-law for the last four years of her life and she had just died um, the August before uh, Hayden was due to start high school and we had bought a house in town um, and they we decided that um, I would go to town for a certain period of time during the week you know three days a week or whatever and the kids would catch the bus and that was that worked really well uh, but I was very very unhappy um, and there was some stuff that was going on inside the marriage that wasn't good and I suddenly got out and I could see a lot more clearly than what I had ever seen before and that was um, that was when I made the decision to to move to town full-time 
Um, and, you know, that was probably, that was the year that I turned 40. So I would say the year that I turned 40 was the best year and the worst year of my life. Mm. What did that clarity look like for you? Um, just that, just that, you know, I, I didn't have to feel the way that I was feeling, I think, um, that there, there was other options rather than being filled with anxiety for, um, for every waking moment. You felt like you could breathe again. Yeah. Yeah, I did. And I, um, and I think also that was when I worked out that exercise was really good for my anxiety as well. And I spent hours at the gym and running and at the beach and it really, it just takes the fog away from your head and suddenly, you know, there's all this stuff that opens up. Mm. And did you miss the farming element of that? How did you cope with that? Yeah, no, I hated it. It was terrible. I, I, I just, I couldn't, I felt like the, um, felt like the walls were coming in on me in town and I hated, you know, everything I loved about farming, you know, the open space and the freedom and, and everything that had all been taken away. And, you know, I, I never had it, I never thought that it would affect me like that. I, um, I, I know that I wrote a blog there at one stage about how, like I love rain, but this one particular day, the rain unsettled me so much that all I wanted to do was race back out to the farm and put my feet inside the farm gate. And at that point, even though I owned land, I couldn't go there. Um, so I was really restrained to um, to town. And um, I wasn't prepared for the, the loss of the farm. And I would always say there was like lots of um, lots of conversations between my ex and I at the time when as we were trying to work out settlements and, and stuff and and I just said made a crack at me one day and I just said you know what I actually left you I didn't want to leave the farm and that was always that that was always it I never wanted to leave the farm but I couldn't stay where I was and how did that end up do you are you a land holder now yeah, I've got 2,000 acres. Uh, it was the original farm that we bought that, um, that had the Atco hut on it. Um, so I own that and I share farm, I share crop with a friend of mine, uh, Alistair McIntyre, and uh, whatever land um, is left from the cropping, he runs, he leases and runs his sheep on. So I've got the ability to go there whenever I want. I can help with harvest, I can help with seeding, but I'm not tied to it. And I I actually hurt my back about three years ago. I um, had a prolapsed disc and um, was paralysed for a little while, so I had to have spinal surgery. And I've never really come good from that. Like, it's manageable. So I can't physically go back and work um, like I did beforehand. But I've got the best of both worlds because I can get out there and I can look around and, you know, we're putting up new fences and we put a new... Um, new set of sheep yards there there's never been a set of proper sheep yards on that farm we always used to use transportable so I've got this brand new set of sheep yards there that I love (laughs) and um and you know just just mucking around doing things like that it's great fun does the hut still exist 
It does. I'm going to get, when I have got some money, I am going to get that bulldozed as quick as what I can. Oh. <laughs> right. It's gone. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I wasn't expecting you to say that. I thought you might say the opposite. I'm going to do it up for good. <laughs> oh, no, it's so fast. It is so fast fixing up. It's not funny. <laughs> During this time, DV Assist came to life. What is that? So DV Assist is a organisation that uh, supports people experiencing family and domestic violence in rural areas, only in rural areas. Um, and what I found um, in researching for DV Assist was that, and, and what I was hearing on my travels as a as a writer, that people were finding it hard to find services in their towns it, or, or to access them. They weren't. It wasn't that they weren't there. Well, certainly in the larger towns, it wasn't that they weren't there. It's just that people didn't know that they were there, or um, they were frightened to access them because they didn't want to see their they didn't want people to see their car parked out the front of, you know, the counselling services or or whatever. Mm. So what I wanted to do was bring all of the services that were in towns in into one website. So if you chose Esperance or you chose Albany, you would find all of your services under your town name and then with icons that say, you know, counselling or everyday necessities or whatever. So if you needed crisis accommodation, you could click on the crisis accommodation um, icon and everything that was in your town would be listed. And then as I was starting to research a little bit more, I, I knew that there were going to be towns that didn't have any services in. So my original idea was that I wanted to put counsellors into these towns then I realised that people don't, there are going to be some towns that people don't want to live in. And so that was going to be tricky. So the best thing to do was to bring it all into one area and have telephone counselling services so people can ring from the safety of their own home when they're, when they're safe, when they're able to. And, you know, their cars aren't being seen down the street in places you know, over time and, um, you know, that, that type of thing. And I also wanted to create a chat counselling service. Well, I certainly know that there's times that you can just go, go and shut yourself in the bathroom and send a text message off to somebody or, or whatever, and that, you know, that sort of can get you through. So I thought the chat services were really um, important as well. So we've got this amazing website now. So I put my own money into that to get it up and going to begin with, ended up um, hooking up with a guy called Peter Fitzpatrick, who was my mentor, who talked me through um, accessing funding from Canberra. We got on a plane, hit Parliament House um, at a week that Parliament was sitting. I think we had something crazy like 14 meetings in like two days or something stupid like that got on the plane on Tuesday night utterly exhausted and yeah I had a phone call from Minister Hunt's office um, a little while later saying that they were going to support us um, to get a 16 town pilot program up and going so that's what we've done um, so in October 1st of September last year, we launched the new website, which is a really, the website's available to anybody. So uh, anyone from across Australia can, can access that. There's a heap of information there about whether, um, you know, for people experiencing or not sure if they are, um, you know, what family and domestic violence looks like. There's so many different types. Some people don't know, you know, like I didn't know that there was um, there was this emotional abuse where people play with your head. I, I, 
I had no idea that that existed. So, you know, the, the, and so DVSC started off as breaking the silence and that was why it was called that, to break the silence around all these other parts of domestic violence that people didn't know were there. Um, there's information on how to help because sometimes people don't know how to help or don't know what to say. Uh, so there's there's heaps of, heaps of info on that. The first of October last year, we started the counselling services. So you know, and we've had as much as it breaks my heart, we actually have a really good response. You know, I didn't I didn't have the idea for DV assist um, without knowing that there was a, a need for it in the country, um, and I guess. Being having lived in the rural areas all my life, I knew what we needed to create a safe space for rural people, and that was what I wanted to do. Have you been surprised by its patronage? Um, yeah, well, yes and no, if you if you know what I mean. Like, I, I'm really grateful that people have taken, um, people have trusted it enough to call. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but the, the amount of calls that come through are, are quite frightening. When was the seed for DV Assist? When did it sort of begin? And obviously the rollout was last year. So how long did that yeah. take? Um, yeah, so I, uh, the idea came from a breakfast meeting I had with a friend uh, and she was talking about how uh, one of her, uh, like her ex-husband had needed mental health services and they just couldn't find them and they, they, and they weren't there. That was probably the big thing for for that one is they weren't there. And I thought, uh, and somebody had said to me, a friend of mine had said to me very early on in the piece that I would, um, I should be able to go and work um, and promote, I don't know if promote's the right word, but, you know, I should be able to go and work with um, or be someone's voice for, for domestic violence of people that don't have a voice. And that was where the idea came from. And I spent a little bit of time working with, you know, some people around WA that have had experience um, in putting um, business plans and, and so forth together. And then I took the idea to the Rural Women's Award in 2017. And um, I, I didn't win. Tanya, um, Tanya from Camp Coolin, who best organisation in the whole world, won, won that year. And it was um, it was amazing to see, you know, the spin-off for her that came from that. But I came away from that experience knowing that my idea was too important not to do something with. So that was why I decided to, um, to put my own money into it. How does the success of this, I, you, I, can, I can hear that it makes you, that it pains you to hear that you've, you know, hit the nail on the head by creating such a service. But how important is it to you personally that you've done this? Uh, I, look, I think um, I think I'm just here to put on. I'm here on this earth just to help people. You know, and um, whatever whatever cause that takes me on. Like I certainly had, um, uh, I had a, a really invested interest in family and domestic violence and I didn't want anyone to, uh, one person experiencing family and domestic violence is too many. So if I helped one person, that was that was what my aim was. Um, you know, I think we've helped more than that, I hope, already. Um, but, you know, now I, I've sort of stepped away a little bit from, from that and my son is uh, just starting to create um, some videos about autism and to educate people that don't have autism to how 
he feels when he's experiencing things. So I'm, you know, whatever, and I'm running some writing um, workshops and manuscript assessments and so forth. So whatever way I can help people, that's really what I'm here to do. So um, I'm proud of DV Assist. I'm proud of um, that 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 it exists and it's been a hell of a ride to get to where it's got to. But uh, yeah, just so long as it keeps on going, helping on helping people, that's that's all it needs to do. We'll be back in just a moment, but now a quick word from today's sponsor. Today's episode of Life on the Land is brought to you by Blundstone Australia. The iconic boot brand recently celebrated its 150th anniversary. An incredible landmark for the brand, Blundstone has a long history of making the sturdiest, most comfortable and stylish boots for all walks of life. Established in Tasmania in 1870, Blundstone remains 100% family-owned and Tasmanian-based and continues to be shaped by the vision and values of its founders and owners. For over 150 years, their commitment to durability, style and quality has not changed. The Blundstone range includes safety and casual styles for men and women and kids' boots that are easy to pull on and off when on the farm. Blundstone. Tested by every generation since 1870. When did writing become a part of your life? Uh, always, I think. I used to write plagiarisms of Enid Blyton, boarding school stories and so forth and loved, <laughs> loved doing that. And then when I went to boarding school, I used to write lots of lovesick teenage poetry um, and so I've, and spiels and spiels and pages and pages of letters back to my grandparents because, you know, of course back then, and this is why I go to the hairdresser because I'm old now and I'm grey, that um, <laughs> back then we only had pay phones and we were only allowed to call out on Sundays and, you know, that's when the STD calls were, you know, cheaper and, um, you know, all mm. that sort of stuff. So mm. I used to, we used to write. We just used to write. And um, so I'd write, you know, four or five, you know, A4 pages back to Nana and Papa telling them what I was doing and, I don't know whether they used to read them all or not. They probably read them. Oh, here's another bloody letter from Fleur. <laughs> it's like, oh, put them but um, you know, Papa used to. Papa and Anna always used to write back, and you, it would be such an important thing to go to the the mailboxes when you got home from school to see if you had a letter. So you know, the writing's always been there. Um, I come from a really long line of storytellers. My dad's a really wonderful storyteller. Uh, my nana Parnell. Um, used to used to sit us down. I've got her her antique chair that um, it's an old smoker's bow antique chair that she used to sit us grandkids in while she would stand in front of the fire with her skirt hoisted up at the back so she'd warm her bum, telling us <laughs> stories about you know all these wonderful characters that were out of Alice Springs or you know wherever they were. And so I think we've just all of us cousins have that ingrained in us. My cousin Tanya has had. Um, three books published with Alan and Alan as well. So they're, they're her memoirs, but, um, you know, and, and my cousins write songs and my brother's a musician. So, you know, we, we've all 
we're all a bit arty somewhere along the line. So I think it's just in the genes. How good is that? I love that. Love that story about your granny. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, she was a pretty cool old lady. When did you actually start writing for when tell me I, I'm interested in like the light bulb moment for you where you're like oh, I'm gonna write a novel so I was mum and dad always thought that I should do something with writing whether I was going to be a rural journalist or something and I still would have loved to have been a rural journalist you know that was um not anything I gave any thought to when I was leaving high school but certainly as I've gone along in life and I've watched, you know, I've, you know, I've listened to you, Sky, when you're doing the country hour and, and all of that. Yeah, it just it looks like it's, it would be a great fun job, you know, being involved in agriculture but also writing. But so I was writing, I mum and dad had given me this writing course that I, I never finished. I did about three modules of it. Um, and one, include, one of the things to do with that was to write a children's story. And I was writing stories for Hayden anyway because he was having trouble with his attention span. I was trying to write about things that he knew and he understood. I wanted to be able to write for him to make sure that, he, you know, he had he had things that he was understanding and um, hopefully help his attention span at school. And so I, I started writing and then I submitted one of those stories to to my tutor and he just said to me you're hiding your light underneath the bushel you need to submit some of these to some agents and I I didn't really know how to do that I, then I was given Jillaroo by Rachel Treasure for Christmas the book Jillaroo and I read that and I thought oh I reckon I'm in a really good spot to be able to write something like this got a great imagination you know farming you know, all that sort of stuff just love it and that was um and then I started, I sat down and I wrote, I don't know, three or five chapters of Red Dust. And then I put the, the first chapter of Red Dust into um, Alan and Unwin's Friday Pitch Day. So this would have been about 2007, I think. And they didn't want it at that point. They'd never published a book like Red Dust. Um, they just said, Louise came back and said, oh, look, your writing's really strong and commercial. Um but it's not something that we would take on. We suggest you try another publisher. Uh, for whatever reason, I didn't want to do that. I um, then um, rejigged the first three chapters and sent it through. Uh, and then about three weeks later, I had a contract. Um, so, yeah, a little bit of a really crazy Amazing. ride. Um, Amazing. Amazing. Yeah, yeah what... Well, it was. It was. It was. Um, it, it was incredible. So this was two thousand and seven. Uh, what stage yep. were you? Were you still on the farm then? Yep, I was. Yep. So I'd have left the farm six and a half years ago. Uh, so I wrote quite a few books while I was still out there. Wasn't met with the. Um, got told one day that that writing was sort of something that should be just done as a hobby on Sunday afternoon when um when there's nothing left to do um but I don't know I never used to feel really whole unless I was writing I used to get this funny itch in my fingers which is going to sound really strange but I just used to get these itches itch in my fingers until um until I wrote something and yeah, and you know, in a way, I've probably got the best job in the world because, again, you know, crossing over for that rural journalist thing, I'm writing about agriculture, I'm writing about things that are important to us as an industry, and I'm managing to 
um, hopefully educate people without bashing them over the head that wouldn't understand our industry otherwise. And I'm still getting to write as well. So, you know, like I'm talking about agriculture and, and you know, how much, what an awesome industry it is to be involved in, but I'm also writing. At what time during the day did you manage to find time to write? Um, I used to, you know, take a notepad and pen with me when I was shifting sheep or, you know, I never had a laptop when I first started writing. Um, so, you know, a lot of it was longhand that I'd put onto the computer when I was able to. Uh, we used to do an AI program with cattle um, every June and so that would, um, that would mean that my ex would go out early in the mornings, you know, like four o'clock or whatever to see who was who was on on incoming to season and so forth. And I um, I would get up then and write a lot then. And I used to, it was funny, I'd go to, um, after I left the farm and I was able to go to Sydney and have meetings with the publishers, they would say to me, you know, like, when do you write? And I said, I love the four o'clock hour, you know, like it's black outside. It's like the witching hour. So there's so much mystery and intrigue out there. And the head of publishing just turned around and said, what is this 4am you speak of? 4am yes. seems to be coming like such a hot hour and it seems so ridiculous to me. I'm like, whoa, why, why do we have to wake up at 4am to get anything done? <laughs> yeah, I don't know, but it seems to work. Um, and because I do a few other things, you know, um, the, the time difference, if I'm up at that time and the time difference between WA and the Eastern States when daylight savings is on is a, really, is a really good thing. Get on and make all the phone calls that I need to do early and then I've got the rest of the day left to, to what I need to do. Mm. In those times when you were still on the farm, did you feel like you had to steal time to write and you had to write in secret? I, yeah, I used to write down in the spare room and I would go out. We had a very long driveway and I would go out and... Um, and just check to make sure that there wasn't a vehicle coming up the driveway. I also read that you love writing anywhere. Where is your favourite place to write? Um, outside, anywhere outside. You know, like I um, love camping and so if, we, if, if I go for a camp sort of up out of Norseman or somewhere, I'll always take the laptop with me. Um, here in town I've got a tree out in the backyard that I've got a table set up under and chair out there and um, go and sit out and and, um, and write for as long as what I can till the laptop battery goes flat. Um, yeah, but, you know, there's, there's um, anywhere really. Uh, I think when you're a writer, you write. I noticed in one of the questions that you had there about having a really strict routine. I, mm. <laughs> I don't. Mm. I, I, am, I am the world's worst procrastinator and I will do anything to avoid writing when I have to start the book. Um, yeah, but looking at that blank page and knowing that you've got to fill it with, you know, 80 to 100,000 words is really intimidating. And, you know, that, and that, which is probably why I love the editing process more because I've got something to work with. Having to start from scratch with nothing is, um, is really difficult. Um, but yeah, no, it, I love the editing. So, says the lady who writes work. two books a year. <laughs> yeah, How do you find anyway. stuff to write about? So, I've got this wonderful detective friend in Perth who used to run the Stock Squad, which is, um, and, and his name is Dave. 
So my he's not Detective Dave Burrows in my books is not based on my friend, uh, but he certainly has got a lot of input into him. I had actually created Dave Burrows before I met my my mate. Um, and I just ended up, um, you know, I ended up talking to him. He, he always helps with the um, authenticity of the investigation techniques when it comes to anything to do with rural crime and and that and you know you get snippets from from anywhere. I the store one of the stories that I tell about um, well Silver Clouds is is a um, no not Silver Clouds Emerald Springs is a classic with that because there was a there's a carjacking from a rodeo. Um, at the beginning of that book and my dad was the treasurer for the Carrot and Rodeo um, committee for a while and I said to him one day you know what do you do with all the money because you know it's not like you've just got ten dollars in coming through the gate you know there's a lot of people that turn up at these rodeos <clears throat> and they just said um dad said oh, I'll just take it home and I said to him what if you get robbed he said just, he gave me this look that my parents have been giving me for all my life when Flair's imagination just gets a little bit too um, out there for them to cope with and said, that is never going to happen, Fleur. And I said, oh, well, it may not, but I could make it happen. So I wrote, that was the basis of, of Emerald Springs. And funnily enough, the Carrot and Rodeo Committee, after that book came out, got security guards to take oh. the money to the bank. <laughs> <laughs> well, you did. I think an important part of your story is your childhood and we haven't really touched on on that too much, but tell me the stories about how much time you used to spend with your father and what he used to do. So Dad, um, Dad owned a business called Pineal Transport Industries, uh, which was a fuel distributorship um, based out of Oruru. And uh, so that business had been running since the early 1800s, my great-grandfather had started it and used to build sulkies and buggies and mm. and stuff and then um, cart produce out to the farmers with um with those buggies and so forth and then my grandfather came on and took that over and um yeah family had some hard times and and the business wasn't going so well so dad wanted to be a doctor but Nana asked him to stay. This is my Nana that used to, you know, hoist her skirt up at the back, um, stand in front of the fire. She asked him to stay just until the business got back on its feet and Dad never ended up leaving and he created um, an amazing empire of a business. So, um, you know, we used to have great times. We'd just sing songs. and but And you used to get out of school all the time. Yeah, so Dad would just sweep up. I'd ask to go with him. Mum would say, no, I had to go to school. School was just a drag, and um, yeah, dad would swing past in the truck and pick me up, and and then um, I wouldn't turn up lunchtime or turn up at um, after school, and I'm at school. I guess she's gone with John in the truck, and then she'd get a phone call that night from a payphone on the side of the road at Glendambo or somewhere, and it's like, oh yeah, I've got Fleur. <laughs> <laughs> oh, those are the days. Fleur, next year you will publish your 20th book. Uh, congratulations. I just think your output is so prolific and the way that you manage it is amazing. What do you think it is that the public love about, about rural lit? Do you know, I have no idea. I'm just very grateful that they do, you know, because without the reader I wouldn't have a job. Um, but 
you know, whether it's a swing off from McLeod's Daughters, whether everybody loved that um, show or, or what, I'm really not sure. Um, what I do know is I, I'm, I love being able to take my world that a lot of people would never experience into their lounge rooms or wherever they choose to read and just share, you know, my, my experiences uh, and my stories with them. Um, I do have some, a lot of people say how much they love Dave Burrows and, yeah, Dave's just this cult figure in my books now. I, I think I would get lynched if I didn't write a book with him in it, mm-hmm. without him in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's been great fun learning to get to know him over the whole time. So he's been with me since 2007. Um, and I, I you know, have a joke that I would have married him years ago if he was real. <laughs> and everyone's going, no, 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 I want to. <laughs> How um, how many more books do you think you've got in you? Do you have a, a, a golden number? No, um, no, I don't know. We just keep going until something happens. Well, you know, you're only as good as your last sale. So, you know, if you don't, um, if you don't sell, you're not going to get another contract. So we've just got to make sure that each book keeps getting better and you've still got the connection with the readers and and so forth. So hopefully um, hopefully, I'm able to continue to do that. It's been so lovely to speak with you today, Fleur. Thanks for, for taking the time to tell us your story. Thanks, Guy. There's something so special about rural writers, not only the way that they see their special spot in the world, but the way that they are so beautifully able to articulate life on the land. It was such a special treat for me to be able to speak with Fleur after all these years as she sat in her home in Esperance, a place that is really special to both our hearts. For me, it was my first ever posting with the ABC when I was so fresh out of university and had never been on the radio before. And I just think it is one of the most naturally beautiful places in Australia. Fleur's book, Something to Hide, goes on sale tomorrow from Alan and Unwin. Check out their website for more information. Thank you to our sponsors for Series 3, Blundstone Australia. And as we all head off on an Easter break this week and come to the end of Series 3, we need to say thank you to you, our awesome listeners, for staying with us on this journey as we bring to life the stories of women living on the land all over Australia. We'll be back soon with Series 4 of Life on the Land. But in the meantime, you can lose yourself in the autumn edition of Grazy Her, the last from our editor, Claire Dunn. It is a brilliant issue and the best kind of Easter holiday reading. Take care and we'll be back soon with another story of life on the land.